You are listening to a podcast from Saint Bart. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit saintbart.com.au. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, it'd be great to have that open and ready. We're still continuing in Matthew, so Matthew chapter 15. At the moment, we're right in the thick of a series in Matthew's Gospel, really exploring different encounters that Jesus had with a whole range of different people. And as we do that, the kind of lens that we're coming to those encounters is that we want to see the way that people respond in what their responses might inform, shape and challenge our response to Jesus as well. So that's the focus of our series. And today we come to Matthew chapter 15. So there's an outline on the back of the news. So if you want to follow along with that, there's translation points there in Korean, Dinka, Simplified Chinese and English. But right now, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. (coughs) Gracious God, thank you so much that you have poured out your grace and invite us to respond in faith. Please help us to have a humility that delights in Jesus' greatness, a confidence that springs forth from Jesus' strength, and a conviction that his good news is for absolutely everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. In Australia, we really love the underdog. You know, the person, the team, or the party who comes from a position of weakness. The one who is really unlikely on paper. You know, it's against all odds for them to come out on top and win. It's why, even though I don't actually remember it happening, I know that in 1983... Australia won the America's Cup yacht race. Australia broke a 132-year streak by the United States, and that the Prime Minister of the time, Bob Hawke, gave some fairly cheeky advice to any boss who sacked an employee for not showing up to work the next day because they were too busy partying the night before. It's, It's why that when we have a federal or state election, Both parties often scramble to simultaneously claim underdog status. You're not the underdog, I'm the underdog. No one wants to claim to be the favourite. They don't want to claim to be the favourite in the fear of that tall poppy being cut down. But that wasn't the case in the ancient world. Everyone clamoured to assert their strength. There was no power and weakness. There was no advantage in claiming underdog status. And whilst the 1983 America's Cup is really the quintessential Australian underdog story, the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15 is really the epitome of the underdog in the ancient world. She comes from the outside and a position of weakness. She has almost no power in her situation. Yet in her response to Jesus, she not only recognises who Jesus is and seems to grasp the scope of his mission, but she shows us the way that anyone can come to Jesus is by expressing faith in him. That's one of the key themes of Matthew's gospel, one of the distinctive parts of Matthew that he wants to make clear, it seems, through all these extraordinary encounters with Jesus, is that the way we can be connected and reconciled to God, that the way that we become members of God's kingdom is exclusively by faith in Jesus. 
not through the precision or persistence of sacrifices, not through the people group to whom we belong, not through the praiseworthy things that we've done, but faith in Jesus alone. Faith isn't a leap in the dark. Faith is not merely believing that something is true, but it's a relationship expressed in trust in the truth of who Jesus is. That's what Jesus invites us into. And if you want to see what great faith looks like, well, according to Jesus, he said you just need to look at how the Canaanite woman responded to him. Jesus said, woman, you have great faith. She shows us what great faith is. So let's have a look. The Canaanite woman recognises Jesus, cries out for mercy, and expresses astonishing faith. So first, the woman recognises Jesus. So we're in chapter 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Conflict is escalating. Jesus, along with the disciples, are increasingly facing the scrutiny of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In the eyes of the religious folk, Jesus and the disciples are tainted. They're mixing with all the wrong people and failing to uphold all the right practices. The religious elite just can't see that whilst they really think, earnestly think that they're in the right, that the problem of sin, so that which truly makes us unclean, well, that problem runs much deeper. It's a problem of the human heart. And so now Jesus withdraws for some time out. Jesus spent the vast majority of his time in Jewish provinces, so Judea and Galilee, but now as he withdraws, he enters into what is now modern-day Lebanon, the region of Tyre and Sidon. So this just isn't foreign territory, but this is a region with a long history, a tumultuous backstory of animosity and conflict with Israel. That's what Matthew is likely signalling what he wants us to sort of pay attention to when he refers to the woman as a Canaanite. That would have been actually a pretty unusual, almost formal and old-fashioned way of describing someone from that region. Mark, in his parallel account to this encounter, he identifies the woman as a, a Greek, born in uh, Syrian Phoenicia. Calling her a Canaanite would be a bit like me saying, not that I'm from Australia, but I'm an Antipodian or something like that. Uh, Matthew's reminding us, not only is this woman an outsider, a bit on the fringe of Canaan, but she's part of a people who have been on the outside of Israel for some 3,000 years. Centurions and tax collectors were a bit on the nose, but a Canaanite woman is almost the last person you would expect Jesus to be speaking to. Yet this woman not only comes to Jesus, but she remarkably really recognises who Jesus is. A number of years ago now, I had been down in Sydney for the day for a meeting when I had a surprise encounter with Miroslav Volf. Uh, Miroslav Volf is a Croatian-born theologian. He's at Yale University, and he's written, amongst other things, one of the most influential books on forgiveness. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. I'd long appreciated his work. I'd heard him speak at conferences... But on this day, when I was racing back to the airport, I never expected that I'd encounter him face to face. In fact, 
I'm a bit embarrassed to say, I was so taken aback by this about seeing Miroslav that as the door swung open of the airport and Miroslav walked out, without hesitation, without thinking at all, I threw my hands in the air and exclaimed, Miroslav! I know it's really embarrassing, but however surprised I was, I assure you it was evident by the look on Miroslav's face that he was even more surprised than I was at this random, exuberant Australian recognising him. Actually, I was only all the more embarrassed when I realised that the person standing next to him who witnessed all of this actually knew me. <laughs> the Canaanite woman not only recognises Jesus, but she really grasped the gravity of who he is. Did you hear that? She called him Lord, son of David. Jesus is actually amazed by her perception, clarity of perception of who he is. Whilst the word for Lord here is really just a polite and common form of address, a bit like sir, the recognition of Jesus, son of David, shows extraordinary insight. Son of David is a reference to the long-awaited king, the Messiah. The Messiah who had been promised for centuries. The Messiah who had come to establish God's kingdom. This is the king whom Israel had been waiting for. This is the king in whom all of Israel's hopes are, are bundled up in and set upon. Yet somehow remarkably... The Canaanite woman, woman is the one who recognises who Jesus is, the son of David. So many of Jesus' own people have failed to grasp who he is. They've even treated him as an enemy. While well, someone, effectively, from enemy territory recognises him wonderfully for who he truly is. But note, of course, that this is not just a casual academic identification for it is in her very recognition of Jesus that she responds. She cries out to him. The woman cries out for mercy. That's the second part of her response. So would you jump back to verse 22? We'll pick up a little bit through verse 22. So she comes to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Note that when Matthew says she was crying out, and when the disciples say she keeps crying after out, out after us, we're meant to understand that the tense, from the tense of the word, that this is a, a persistent and a continual crying out to Jesus. At home sometimes there can be a ring of some persistent and continual crying out. But this is altogether different. This is a cry for mercy. Her daughter is terribly afflicted by evil. She is suffering terribly. But as the woman helplessly watches her daughter being afflicted in this way, she's suffering too. This is the desperate plea of a parent who is powerless to help. Over the last 10 years in Toowoomba, as I think back on occasions when I visited sick children in hospital and sat alongside 
the parents in anguish, amidst that anguish, I have to say that the memory of that and the emotion of, of that is so visceral, just, just lying below the surface, that it's even in the mere beginning to recall those times of anguish that I can feel some of that emotion rushing to the surface. In Mark's account of this encounter, he actually describes the daughter as little, as young. But of course, it wouldn't matter how old the daughter was, it wouldn't diminish a parent's pain. She doesn't have any of the moral, cultural, or social credentials to show up. She breaks through all the barriers. She cries over and over again, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. It seems so obvious what Jesus, of all people, would do next, doesn't it? It seems so obvious. After all, it doesn't seem long before this that when the Pharisees were getting really worked up about Jesus and the disciples, hanging out with the tax collectors and, and his friends, what did Jesus say to them to rebuke them? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. The disciples hear this. Jesus said it. But we're in for a double surprise. Not only do the disciples seem annoyed, perhaps even embarrassed by this woman's relentless crying, they urge Jesus to dispatch her, to send her on the way, to stop bothering them. But Jesus, well, at first, we see in verse 23, did not answer a word. Nothing. We know that Jesus is merciful. He's shown that to us over and over again. It's really hard to know what he's doing. It's hard to understand the silence. Maybe you felt the weight of that too. There's something beautifully instructive to us by this encounter. Did you see that she doesn't sugarcoat her situation? She is just pouring out her lament and anguish. But as she does that, she's also fixing the focus of her hope firmly on Jesus. There's something beautiful about that lament and hope coming rushing towards and centering on him. We, of course, don't know what is going on in Jesus' mind during that silence. It's almost as if this silence is beckoning something more from her. I think it's a bit like the holding of a, a breath before something spectacular happens. Jesus is about to give us an insight into how God's mercy works. Not that every ailment is healed now, but a glimpse that God desires to pour out his mercy to everyone, that no one is off limits. A glimpse that God is not satisfied with the condition of our world, that it's through Jesus that everything will be made new and everyone's invited. Everyone's invited to put their faith in him. And that's exactly what we see. The woman expresses astonishing faith. Verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. 
Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Uh, We see at least three things here which make for the woman's faith thing truly astonishing. At first, her faith is humble. She doesn't think that Jesus owes it to her. Did you catch that? It's not only that she throws herself before Jesus, that she kneels before him, but actually it's also in the very cry for mercy itself. By asking for mercy, she's not asking for something based on merit. She's not asking for a reward. She knows that she is not worthy. That's so countercultural for us. In our culture, we're really rights-driven, rights-orientated. I'm owed it. I deserve it. Now pay up. Now, not only does that end up being a really crushing way to live, but if we approach life like that, it also becomes a crushing standard that we'll end up placing on others. The woman doesn't come on the base of her rights. She knows that she doesn't have a seat at the table. She comes on the basis of Jesus' goodness. That's why when Jesus says in verse 26 that it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, as shocking as that might seem, which we'll get to in a moment, she doesn't dispute her status. She knows she's not one of God's people. Unlike the religious folk who couldn't recognise that they were sinners, she has grasped both her unworthiness and discerned Jesus' greatness. Like the centurion who desperately brings his need to Jesus, discerning no worthiness of his own, the woman humbly recognises her place before Jesus, therefore all that is left to do is to express her utter dependence on him. Great faith means relying on Jesus' greatness and not our goodness. Second, her faith is bold. Not only because she comes as a vulnerable outsider, not only because she's asking, well, for a miracle, not only because she's relentless even when she's not welcome, not only because she's even willing to engage with Jesus, but her faith is bold because its focus is on Jesus alone. The substance of her boldness, so what makes her boldness really gritty, is not a confidence of herself that comes from within, but because her confidence is in Jesus. Great faith looks like shifting from a reliance on ourselves to a reliance on Jesus. Third, her faith is clear. Not in the sense that she can articulate some sort of extensive creed or she's memorised all these sort of theological institutes or something like that. Not only clear in that her faith finds its focus and strength in Jesus, but clear in that she grasps that God's grace and Jesus' mission is for everyone. When Jesus refers to the women's people as dogs, we can be, really rightly, taken back by that. It was a derogatory term used to describe the Gentiles. Some people have thought that Jesus is just reinforcing racist stereotypes, but clearly that just doesn't stack up with all the other evidence we have about Jesus. Others have said, well, maybe Jesus said it with some sort of glint in his eye, bantering with the woman, but we just don't know because all we have is the text, not the tone. And some have even suggested that the woman was just really persuasive and she changed Jesus' mind in the course of this conversation. But that can't be the cause, because we know that he wasn't opposed to ministering to Gentiles. We've already seen that as he healed the Gentile centurion's slave. 
No, there's something else going on here. He's not shutting the door. It's like he's using this entire encounter as a parable. Jesus may have responded in precisely the way that many would have expected, but he's about to twist this whole interaction, turn around and remind them of something that they had forgotten. Yes, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus didn't go to Athens or Rome or Alexandria. In fact, other than a few excursions further afield like this one, almost the entirety of Jesus' ministry, you know, the most influential person in history, only took place in a very small geographical footprint. Early on in the disciples' ministry, he instructed them then not to go to the Gentiles. But what's changed? It's the order of things. The Canaanite woman stands between Jesus telling the disciples not to go to the Gentiles in chapter 10 and then dispatching them to the very ends of the earth in chapter 28. Jesus is showing the disciples and the world that not only is he Lord, but he is Lord of all. So many of God's people had not only forgotten God, but they had forgotten God's purpose for them as a people. They were meant to be a light to the nations. Jesus didn't just come into the world to only save God's people, but he came to fulfill the very vocation of God's people for the whole world. His mission, the words of Tom Wright, was aimed at Israel, but not only for Israel. The woman seems to understand that. When uh, Jesus says, it isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, and she replies, yes, it is, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs uh, that fall from the master's table... It's like she's saying, Jesus, I know that I have no rights. I know that you come first to the children of Israel. I know that there is nothing to the table that I bring. I know that I don't even deserve a seat at the table. But I can see that your grace is super abundant. It even spills onto the floor. Your grace isn't just sort of like a a table that's jam-packed with food to the edges, edges of the table. No, your grace is like a a waterfall that is continuously rushing forth with no end. I can see there is enough grace for everyone. Can you imagine Jesus' face at the moment? I would have loved to see his face at the moment. She gets it. Has he respond? Woman, great is your faith. This encounter is actually why Thomas Cramner who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, the 1662 Book of Prayer. It's this encounter why he could write this prayer. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and your great mercies. We are not worthy so much to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. I know I don't deserve to come to the table, but I also know that you are the Lord of mercy and grace. We, too, are invited to the table with a faith like the Canaanite woman. A faith that is humble because we delight in Jesus' greatness, not our own goodness. A faith that is bold because we have a confidence that springs forth from Jesus' strength and a faith that is clear because we grasp that Jesus' good news 
for everyone. That's the sort of faith that we're invited to share. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the superabundance of your grace that is poured out for everyone. Lord, would you please help us in the very power of your spirit to really recognise who Jesus is? Would you please help us to cry out to him for mercy and put our faith in Jesus alone? Lord, how we thank you and we praise you that you have prepared a seat at the table for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.